Hey, friends, it's your host, Mr. Adam X, and you're listening to the Pursuit Podcast on the Out of Bounds Collective. I had a bad week, and I'm okay with that. Uh, nothing bad happened. It was just a bad week. And sometimes you get in that groove, and that's that's life, and that's okay. And I'm just, I guess I'm just saying it out loud so people can hear it, because like, it, it's okay to be okay. So, not to be too serious, but I just had, it just wasn't a good week for me. Nothing bad happened. My life is good. My friends and family are amazing. I'm great now. Things are great. Uh, traveling to Denver this week. I'm actually emceeing Denver's Oktoberfest. So, if anyone is in Denver, please hit me up. Uh, I will be on stage emceeing. Uh, beer. What are we doing? We're doing stein hoisting and keg bowling. And I will be your host and MC for the weekend. I'll be taking shifts, so I won't always be on stage, but I'll be there. Again, everything is great. Everything is awesome. But my week sucked, and that's okay. My guest this week does not suck. My guest this week is ski legend Dan Egan. Uh, Egan Brothers, Dan and John. Specifically, you know, obviously I talked to Dan because John is a wizard, and you never, if anyone can get him on a microphone, I would be thoroughly impressed but dan egan just wrote a book 30 years in a white haze please go and buy them on he's he has two and dan has so wanted you guys to hear them and i didn't want my episode to be the same so if you have listened to those episodes this interview is not the same as powell's uh episode 173 of the powell movement and episode 240 of the powell movement uh Talks a little more background with Dan, and then part two of Dan's on the Powell Mountain. He talks about Mount Elbrus and basically how he climbed into a hole to die and got saved, and the stories and the emotions. So there was no way we were digging into that podcast into that because it was an hour long podcast. So Paul did an amazing job. So please go listen to that episode. Uh, both those episodes, our episode. I mean, again, this guy, he said it He said it in the interview. He could stand on his head for hours and still never repeat himself. So we talk about polar bears, uh, <laughs> how he kind of had a 007 double, uh, double agent scheme to get into a country, skiing all over the world, stealing vans, living in vans. These guys are the original dirtbags, and Dan knows it, and he's, he's made it out the other side. We talk about progression of sport. And how it's changing and how we use the word progression to, I don't want to say manipulate. Those are my words, not Dan's. But to almost manipulate young kids into doing more. Uh, So we talk about that. We talk about the Ski Hall of Fame. I mean, it's Dan Egan. He's a skiing legend. We wouldn't be here. Extreme skiing wouldn't be what it is without Dan Egan. So here it is, Dan Egan. Skiing with polar bears. But you don't want to know. He doesn't know if you want to talk about killing a polar bear these days. <laughs> well, we didn't kill one, which is okay. great. Okay, so we can yeah. talk about whatever happened yeah. there. Yeah, if that's a yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. We did put a shoot. It, it, we made it look like we shot one in the video, but it was old footage of of uh, uh, you know. And the thing is, uh, when the polar bear is going to take out your uh, your snowmobile, you got no choice. Yeah, it's survival right yeah like it's yeah so it's actually a quick, pretty interesting story because the bear he won't go for you first he goes for the snowmobile that way he knows you can't escape yeah that, i <laughs> guess i wouldn't think about that <laughs> so i mean let's talk about it where were you when this was happening we were up in uh the Torngats, um and we were traversing from angava bay the east side the, the west coast of Quebec to the east coast of Labrador. And we were going to ski Tower Mountain, which is this huge Sphinx-like mountain in the middle. We're pretty much on the border. It's in the national park. And, uh, you know, the big worry up there is polar bears because they sniff around the camps and all that stuff. And you do not want to see a polar bear. Um, you don't want to see polar bear urine or tracks or anything because they're too close 
uh, and our guides uh, who were we were with for 20 days, um, they tell a story about how the polar bear came to attack them when they were out way out out of camp and the, the bear went for the snowmobile instead of them because the bear knew if it got the snowmobile, they couldn't get out. So they, you know, they shot at the, at the bear and, and um, these are, you know, the Inuits and this kid on the run, as he was moving with the rifle up, got the bear in the ear. That's the best place to kill him. Cause it goes right to their brain. And the kid got it on the fly, which is pretty amazing. Uh, I'm glad I didn't see it or it didn't happen on our trip because that, that that's too freaky, you know, up in the Arctic, when you go in the morning, you know, to <laughs> go to the, the loo, you know, you bring a rifle <laughs> and uh, you sit out there and you're ready because you never know. It's crazy. And, you know, of course, the polar bear is so smart. We tie you tie between the igloos and the tents and everything. You tie a, a rope and you follow that rope wherever you go, because if it's windy or you can't see that rope is your lifeline to where you're going. And the polar bear will attack the last person in line. That's, <laughs> I mean, I, I always just think when I hear these stories, whether it's, you know, you or anybody else, we're just going skiing. Like we're getting in these situations to go skiing. Right. Like throw away the avalanche danger and like just working with crampons or ice axes or any of that danger. And then like add polar bears. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, of course, you go to the Arctic and you do not go to the Arctic to ski good snow. Like it's the worst snow of your life. It's windy. It's cold. It's slabby. Like it's terrible skiing, like awful. So, yeah, you add all that. Like, what are we doing up here? Uh, you know, in the Inuits, they were like they couldn't imagine that we wanted to ski the chutes or the couloirs. But that was the only chance you had of getting any sort of wind buffed snow or somewhat softer uh conditions because it was otherwise breakable and hard and yeah not not fun yeah why do you or why did you choose to ski this stuff like was it all driven by because you were definitely the marketing guy behind the egan brothers you were the business so was the were these all conscious business moves was there ever a point where you were like we need to do these things for videos, for shoots, for films, or were you just like, we have an opportunity, this could be really fun and let's do it. Yeah, it was a little bit of both. You know, we, we were sort of on this mission of going to the remote regions of the world. Uh, and of course the Arctic would be right up there. We were 300 miles inside the Arctic circle. Uh, but the two trips we took to the uh, Eastern Canada uh, were both sponsored by the uh, you know, Quebec tourism, Canadian tourism, they were really interested in uh, researching adventure tourism up in that part of the world. Uh, and was it viable? So they sent us because they knew one, we would have films and we would show it on the, on a TV show and all that, those sort of things. Um, and they've since been able to do it with real good outfitters. But a few years back, I got a call from a guy who was writing a guidebook on skiing in the touring gats. And he's like, you're the only person I've known that, you know, that, that I can find that been up there. And he's asked me all these questions and halfway through the interview, the guy, <coughs> excuse me, the writer said, wait a minute, you were where he's like, <laughs> you're like 150 miles further North than I'm even, that's even in my book, you know? And I'm like, Oh yeah, we were up there. You know, we had no idea. Like we were just pointing it. And, uh, you know, you know, they told us people would meet us. The town we were in, Kujak, there's a there's a road. It's a it's a less than a mile long, and it's the only plowed road in the winter. Everything else, that's it. And uh, the 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 bay only uh, melts and is accessible for a couple months in the summer. The musician we found in town was Eddie Snowball. <laughs> and uh, he was the Bruce Springsteen of the town. I still have his CDs. It's really good. And of course, he drove a he drove a Camaro up and down that strip. So I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> That's funny you say that because I'm just picturing El Caminos like rolling up and down the street with snow tires on them. That's the that's the neighborhood I the town I thought of. But were these your ideas? 
or these like Vermont tourism. I mean, I guess it was or not Vermont tourism. I'm sorry, Quebec tourism. That's their idea, and they're seeing it. But how do you come back with that report? No way. Uh, well, we show them the film. We talk to them about how hard it would be and what what's needed up there, and you know what people what people are looking for. Of course, you know, you know, 2000, 2000. We our first trip was in '98. Our second trip was in 2000. I mean, it's unbelievable. 20 years, and I can't even believe 20 years has gone by. And of course, things are much more sophisticated now. And the travel market is, you know, wants these things. That that was quite innovative back then to think what it would be like then, you know, today. Um, and, you know, like so many things in my career, we may have been like early adapters to it, but in the back of my mind, go, I'm going to never work, like never work. And, and the biggest example of that is when we were in Yugoslavia before the Civil War started, we're technically in Slovenia and we got invited to the Elan ski factory and they showed us the first ever shape ski, the first SEX, you know, the big crazy ski. And we laughed. We like, yeah, maybe in Yugoslavia, but never in the States. Like that thing's never going to take off, you know? Uh, and of course, you know how wrong. So, you know, you see these things in real time and you scoff at it. So I think it's, it's, it, it's interesting and hard to keep an open mind, uh, particularly when you're on the edge of something. You know, um, we were on the edge of technology with VHS tape. Like, that was crazy, yeah, right? Yeah, it's unheard of now. It's unheard of, you know. And, and uh, I remember when we bought our last, you know, high eight, digi high eight camera, and my camera guys were telling me, we got to go digital. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Digital. <laughs> I don't want a shelf full of hard drives. Like, I couldn't even imagine it. So, you know, you can be on the edge on some things and off the back on so many others. Touching on the VHS thing, and this is my Intel Corey Potter, the first <laughs> ski film that you produced, you didn't know how to cut all your clips. And correct me if my Intel is wrong, but you filmed like a TV screen and then created all the clips that way. And everyone thought it was like your your way of doing this like magical art, but really you just had no idea what you were doing for lack of a better term. And you didn't know how to cut these clips. Yeah. We, um, we had sold uh, Fisher skis. We, they, they sponsored us with the idea that we would produce a movie and um, you know, we, we were able to get some cash sponsorships in the late eighties, but not enough to actually make a movie. <laughs> so <laughs> I had always been fascinated with slideshows. Uh, Ned Gillette, who, you know, was the famed mountaineer and, and circumnavigated Everest and did all these amazing things, would always travel with a slideshow. And Eric Perlman, who was producing the North Face films, he had a slideshow of his climbing uh, days. So I wanted to produce a slideshow. So because we could afford a still photographer, we could afford 35 millimeter, uh, 35 center slides. And so we collected all these slides and I took six slide projectors, stacked them three by three next to each other and got this little crazy computer that would, you could assign a cut, a dissolve or a flash to each projector. And then it would record a, a tone on my cassette tape, which became the mastermind of the show. And I synchronized this to local Boston bands. And so I had these six slide projectors doing this show and I narrate it live because that's what Warren told me to do. And I recorded the narration on my cassette tape that had the beeps. And then when I played the tape back, the whole show would run and I had my show, but I didn't have a film. So then I took the VHS <laughs> camera and shot the screen and recorded the slideshow on, on, on video. And that became the master of the movie. And uh, we won uh, best new film at, uh, at the, at the college Colorado ski film festival uh, back with that, that tape. And of course, uh, Fisher loved it. They sent it to every retailer in the country. You can find it online. It's uh, worldwide and wild. The Egan brothers worldwide and wild. And you look at it today and you're like, hokey. I mean, the narration is hokey. You can tell it's like kind of not, you know, something's wrong with it. But back in the day, like that was pretty cool. And it was a cool effect. 
Um, and yeah, we toured, <laughs> we toured colleges with that thing, man. That was crazy. Do you think you could have, if the Egan brothers existed, if you were 17 years old right now, would you have had the same career that you had? Is that yeah, I mean, it's a sense? great question. It's a great question because, you know, whether it's my nephews or other kids, kids I coach, you know, they, they have that question, like, how am I going to do, you know, and, and parents with their kids that are competing and just knocking on the door X games and everything. It's a different world. Um, and, you know, the question really is, how do you stand out? Um, you know, Glenn Plake had his mohawk. Scott Schmidt was epic and unbelievable and really smart about how he, he crafted his career. We were the brothers um, and that was our shtick. You know, today you'd really have to figure out how to not look like everybody else in every other video that's being produced, how to throw a trick that stood out. You know, I tell kids, it's great. You're throwing a 1440 or whatever. I don't know what that is. <laughs> and I don't know the difference between that and the other guys, 1440 um, or whatever. So how are you going to do that? That stands out. You know, when you look at uh, Marcus Caston, uh, return of the turn, you know, he has something there. That's, that's, that's got teeth, you know, he's making turning cool again. Now I'm interested. Now I want to know who this guy is and why every time I see his photo on Instagram, he's all like making a turn. Now I bumped into him at Killington, you know, at the world cup a few years back and I had never met him. I'm like, dude, you're Marcus Caston. I follow all your stuff. He's like, Hey, thanks, man. That's really cool. And he's like, you know, and he was heading off to catch last run of the day. And, and then as he was walking away, he's like, what'd you say your name was? I'm like, I'm Dan, dude. I'm Dan. Love what you're doing. <laughs> and he walks away and he's like, all right. And then like, yeah, I get a D you know, direct message me later. Did that, was that you? Were killing <laughs> the humble but, you know, I'm he, Dan Egan. <laughs> he, he has my interest, right? He's that's really something. So there's a few people that are doing, you know, of course, Col Cody Townsend, he's standing out, right? Uh, Chris Davenport did it, of course. So there's, you can kind of hit on the ones that understand what they're doing. Uh, and that's, what's really important. You have to understand what you're doing. I understood back in the eighties that we needed to attach ourselves something bigger than us. And that first attachment was, was the brothers and then Warren Miller. Then we attached Warren Miller to these worldwide events. And, and, and now Warren's excited. So that's how you kind of got to light that fire. But those, that sounds easy now, right? Not right. easy, but when you were doing it, I just want to make that clear for people listening. Like skiing wasn't, you weren't, there weren't Cody Townsend's. You were inventing a career at the time. We, we were, I mean, we had our, we had our mentors, you know, I mean, I would go up to Wayne Wong every time I saw him at the, at the ski show and go, Hey, you know, can you give me any advice or help me out? And Wayne would say the same thing every time. He's like, you're doing fine. Like, <laughs> you don't need me. Like, keep, keep going, you know? Um, and, you know, you have to understand, like when we grew up watching, hot dogging, you know, it was on world, you know, the mogul competitions were on wild world of sports. Like that was really, really cool. And to see these guys ripping and, and being just all out of control, it, it had an attraction to it. Um, and of course, John's, you know, mentors were Patrick Valensant over in Europe and, and these guys. So we had a few people that were kind of, and like I said, Ned Gillette, um, Ned Gillette was the, you know, people don't, some people don't even know who he is, but he was the first guy to get corporate sponsorships for these expeditions. You know, the North Face, uh, sell them into National Geographic, like that caught my attention. So I knew it could be done. And, and that's what I was aiming at. Was it ever a battle? I mean, I'm sure you and your John fought, but like you needed each other. And I think you both recognized that. And John was... You're both the skiers, but you were the businessman and John was the, the skier. He was the he was like the you were both ski bums. I don't want to take it from take it away from either of you. But if any of you had business drive, it was you. And there's like I don't know if you've said it or but like you John looked at you and went to, when you went to a show and was like, you went to college, you did all this. Now go make us money. 
exactly. Yeah. It, well, you know, the thing is, you know, John is a great businessman. Uh, you know, he's run his own construction company forever. And, you know, John's who I work for when I was in high school and college uh, on his cruise. And what I learned by working for him and his partners was you got to work hard. Like no slacking here. Like we worked every day in the summer, every fourth of July weekends on a long weekend, like Labor Day, we would do double time. We'd put a whole frame, a whole house in three days. Um, So I saw John's work ethic um, and, you know, adding, adding the layer of college really was beneficial. And and he knew that. And I knew that. Um, So the other thing that John's really good at is managing. I mean, he's a great manager, he, he, better than me, better with people. You know, I'm like down the line, like get up, catch up. I'm not waiting for you, you know? And John's <laughs> like, dude, treat these people nice. Like chill out. Yeah. You're their idol. <laughs> and, exactly. So, you know, the combination, we did need each other. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Was it weird working? You know, you bust your ass all summer but then you go to these ski shows with Warren Miller or movie, you know, premieres and you guys are rock stars. Like you lived a double life for multiple years. You could be working on someone's house and you're the laborer and they're like, pick up that trash. And, and then you're in another world, you open a door and people are asking for your autograph and printing posters. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, look, it's still true today, (laughs) you know, so, (laughs) um, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get, get it. And it's hard to make it. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of that. You know, it's all in perspective. Uh, when I wrote my second book, Courage to Persevere, it was about uh, Bill Fallon, who was one of the early free doggers in the 70s and had 52 hours of brain surgery. Uh, the Fallon family, Bill's dad uh, was connected to the Kennedys and had run all the managed all the money for the Kennedys during all the campaigns in Boston. So when uh, when the tragedy happened with John Jr. and the plane crashed, in, in, uh, on the way to Vit, the Martha's Vineyard off the coast, I was standing next to Senator Kennedy because I was at with Bill Fallon writing his book with him, interviewing him that day. Senator Kennedy showed up with his whole family, was on the dock, got the call, and Senator Kennedy just thought I was like, I was loading the kids on the boat and just helping with the coolers. He had no idea who I was. Uh, and it was a, just a very memorable day to be there at that moment when he took that call. So, you know, it's all in perspective who, who are, who's anybody. Right. Um, and at the end, it's all comes down to life is fragile. So you never know who you're going to bump into. You never know who you're going to be working for, or working with. Um, and it, it really does open up your mind to, to think about things. You know, I, the, the Roy Tuscany, you know, who runs high fives, He's, he, he said a great thing to me the other day, you know, if you're curious, you'll be less critical. So when you meet somebody, be curious, uh, take an interest in them and find out who you're with. Right. So, you know, I've done that, uh, whether I've been working on swimming pools and be at somebody's house and be curious about them, they slowly become curious about you. So, you know, it is a perspective and how you treat people and how you see it. But for sure, you know, back then building homes or coaching soccer camps and then walking out to a, a, a ski show and being mobbed, it was really quite an experience. And that's one of the things that people get when they read the book. They're like, I've known you for years. I didn't, I didn't know that side of you. When did you realize you were an author? Like, was that always something you had interest in in college and like you were going to write books? And, and obviously it's a beautiful platform for you to tell stories. But was that a conscious thing? choice or did it just like i should write a book one day yeah i mean it, it's interesting you know the sort of of course pre-digital you know writing a book was something i think as kids you know you sort of like you authors were something that was quite quite something unique you know uh you know for me it was writing for the boston globe i would i ever could i ever do something that was you know first i remember when i was interviewed for the boston globe and in the globe but when I first wrote for the Globe, I was like, ah, wow, I'm in the Boston Globe. Like that, that was quite something to aim at. And when I wrote my first book in 1996, it was sort of my, the peak of my career was 
waning. It was going away. And I wanted to shift gears and run these camps and clinics. So I wrote an instructional book, you know, and a book is a good way to sort of anchor your voice and your expertise. And I understood that. So, you know, I've always looked at books as somewhat interesting. Um, you know, of course, I was writing articles and, and doing all that stuff before all terrain skiing. Then I had the chance, I was riding a chairlift with Bill Fallon and he asked me to write his story, which is just a fascinating story because he had all these brain surgeries and then teaches himself how to ski, walk, talk again through the martial arts, Tai Chi. It's fascinating how he did that. Uh, and, and then White Hayes really came about the day Warren Miller Entertainment fired me about 10 years ago. I was, uh, I was coming home one summer I used to oversee 21 cities for Warren Miller Entertainment, and I ran the road shows in 21 cities. I did all the PR and all the athlete management in east of Chicago, and they had an intern call me up and tell me they were taking the accounts in-house. And I was like, the kid didn't even know who he was calling. I mean, I'm like, dude, what? And I had been doing it for a long, long time. And then I thought to myself, you know, they had long since got done with Warren. Uh, there was only two or three of us at most at the company that even knew Warren. Um, and so I, I was kind of bummed. I loved those shows. And I had been been on the road with Warren Miller my entire career. And then I thought, what would Warren do? Warren would write a book. Uh, wine women and Warren lurching from one disaster to another. I'm like, this is, this is the time to do it. And I wrote white haze. I wrote the title down. I wrote all the, I, you know, my idea of what the outline would be, what the chapters would be. And that's how it started. Yeah. I think it's important to note that Warren Miller entertainment was very different than Warren Miller. And some <laughs> yeah. people don't understand that. And no. I think don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Warren Miller entertainment sued Warren Miller for using his likeness in a level one film. I was, the, I was running, you know, like I said, over sus 21 markets during that time. I remember that phone call and I simply said to everybody on the call, shouldn't we promote the film level one's film? Like he's our brand. Like let's elevate this. We he's should be promoting that not suing Warren. We should be celebrating that somebody else is celebrating Warren. We should own it. And of course, that the fallout from that was a disaster. I mean, it just was Warren never understood it. And it was just so misguided. It was also to me growing up more with level one. It was like right. it was level one giving like its nod to the past and realizing like Warren Miller created this industry. I mean, you guys created it. But like without that, oh, Warren created it Warren without created that outlet. There would be no Egan brothers there, you know, there, it, it's just a fact. So when level one was like, this is new school skiing, if we want to call it new school, but here's this old school legend who's going to talk about it, who's going to come. And it was, I mean, it was a beautiful work of art and it really was. And to see, and that's, you know, that's just when you get big. I mean, that's, we could talk about growing pains all day. Well, I mean, it, it, it's something really. And, and it was, you know, we should have always be celebrating Warren, you know, that whenever particularly Warren Miller Entertainment should be celebrating Warren, not fighting with Warren. And that, that was the whole problem when Warren originally sold his company. So, but, but you're right. And I think when you think about it that way, like, you know, uh, Dick Barrymore was great movies, you know, uh, and before Dick and Warren, there was John, uh, uh, John Jay and the, a John Jay film was a fascinating thing to watch. I, I've t I met John Jay. Um, he never wrote down any of his narrations. They were all Just in his up mind there. up there. And I, I asked him at one point, uh, Rory Strunk and I, Rory who's founded RSN. We want to just record whatever he could remember. Uh, just to have it, you know, and now, you know, it's funny because I didn't record many of my narrations for my slideshows and I, gosh, I wish I had, there's very few recordings of those. And if they are, they're on like VHS tapes and, and but, you know, it's something unique to narrate a film live. And Warren knew that because it's a personal connection with your audience. 
when you look at how Warren is adored today, it goes back to that relationship he built with his audience. I don't think, I mean, I didn't personally know Warren by any means, but just the little I've read about him and the documentaries and I don't think he was doing it for every, anyone else but himself. And maybe that was his best quality and his worst quality, but he was selfish. Like, take the family out of, you know, he was just, he wanted to be a ski bum and he wanted to ski and he probably burned a lot of bridges. And I'm sure there's family members that, you know, but I, I, but I think that's what created what it was, is this was all this dude knew. This is all he wanted to do. And hats off to him because in this day and age no one does what they want to do anymore they do what they're supposed to do and like i said i think he had some rough family life but that power to him i don't think he ever woke up one day and was like i'm gonna do something that i shouldn't do well you know we we, you know i talk about this in ski bomb the movie about warren you know often people are misunderstood when they're when they're driven by blind ambition. Uh, those around them don't understand what's happening, you know, because blind ambition is such a strong thing when you're drawn to something and you're doing it, it it's often misunderstood. And where is it most misunderstood is by the ones who love you. Um, and I found that true countless times, uh, countless times, you know, you're just got your head down moving in a direction and somebody wanted you to take more time or be around. And you're like, what? I'm doing this great thing over here. Um, so it's really it's really a weird thing to manage blind ambition. And Warren had that ambition. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Was it a conscious decision? Because that was Greg Stump was kind of coming out there. Was it a conscious? You and Warren were very, I mean, you ended up becoming very good friends from what I understand beyond the skiing world you're just friends that's how life yeah. works you meet people that you're you know that yeah. you're drawn to was there a because i feel like greg stump was like the kind of the he had plague you know and plague was the the yeah. bad boy of skiing at the time was it rivalry was there like secret stories that happened were there like towns where you guys crossed and it was like you know the warriors <laughs> or was it it was it just you know it was what it was well, you know, Greg Stump's amazing filmmaker. His storytelling was outrageously great. The music, you know, he he sort of took it to the next level with what he was doing. And and uh, we wanted to ski for Greg, you know, of course, you know, but, you know, sponsorships being what they were, they didn't always line up. And, and you know, lines were drawn between the Warren Miller gang and and. and and stump and really the only crossover there was schmidt but schmidt didn't shoot for warren during those years um it wasn't until after greg went away that they that scott came back um and you know the the, the tone at warren miller was this is not we can do this so what you see coming out of warren miller during the greg stump years there was the theatrical release and then the video release that's where you saw double exposure to the extreme extreme skiing, all these other titles um, that came out alongside the, the release. And those were supposed to, you know, sort of go head to head with with Greg's videos. Uh, but, you know, it's always the way when the big corporation and the and the up and coming, there's something missing. And usually it's soul, right? The, the real authenticity. And Greg was authentic. Um, so it was interesting, you know, I was at Squaw Valley on the quote unquote shootout day for blizzard. Um, you know, in the narration, you know, Greg says something like when, while others were negotiating in the cafe, Plake jumps in for his first turns of the day. <laughs> and it's a great, like, yeah, well, we were, we were in the cafe negotiating, trying to get in the film. Like Greg didn't even tell us Bennett and the boys were already on top. Like they weren't, it was a done deal. So, um, and of course, you know, Greg since apologized to the people he insulted in that segment, you know, Tom Day and, and uh, Slattery, because um, he was creating a story and unfortunately created some expense, but it was a great story. But yeah, unbelievable times. Yeah, I, I just, I just don't, it's amazing because I don't think those things can happen anymore. 
<laughs> like the way that it all laid out and how, like contracts work and it's just a totally different world now. And when you were doing it, it was literally the wild, wild west, which is amazing. Yeah, to think about, like, I, I have uh, my friend, Atoro Lyon, uh, down in South America. He's like, dude, we used to come to South America. You bring five, six people just carrying your camera gear. The last time you showed up in South America to shoot, it was on a phone. Yeah. Like, things have changed a lot. Yeah, 4K lot. from your phone. It's nuts. It's, it's nuts. It's a totally, it's a different beast. And footage yeah. doesn't get saved. Like, you guys could stack footage and have never been done's and like you know stack them and then release them and tour on them and the first time i'm still doing it i'm still pulling them out (laughs) i'm still i'm still digitizing stuff and pulling it out you know this this is an interesting point because you know youtube is really powerful really really powerful but it's over instagram it's over people haven't thought it through that the vhs tape sat in homes for over 15 years. Like people watch those tapes a lot. I have people come up there. They can hum return of the shred eye theme song. They can quote out of double exposure. You know, they, they, they know these lines from these movies and that that's, that's a result of being in the home for so long. And I think it was one of those, the VHS lived at, you know, their cabin in Okemo and it didn't have, that's what they had. They had the VHS tape. So it was a tradition. Like you get to camp and you put it in and you get, and yeah. you watch it and you, yeah. it was, yeah. yeah, it's just crazy. It's crazy to think about now. And even the level now, the mm-hmm. level of these guys, ski, I think it was Todd Richards snowboarder was just on the bomb hole. And he was like kids who snowboard for two years now are better than me when i was winning olympic medals <laughs> like yeah it's it's that that's that's an interesting thing um you know to me that 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 crosses over with jay leventhal uh you know he he rides the lift with me uh at the stratton trade fair in the early 90s he goes hey mr egan i want to show you my new skis and I look down, it's the first pair of ski blades I ever see. And he's yapping in my ear the whole way up the lift. You know, Jason's got a lot of energy. And we get off the lift and he says, it's funny. And I go, well, what's funny? He goes, Mr. Egan, you don't get it. And I go, I don't get what? He goes, one day we're going to do what you do, but backwards. And I was like, I had never thought of that. Like, what? And he did it. And I never forget it. When I saw a guy jump off a cliff backwards, I called Jason. I'm like, wow, you did it. Like people are doing it backwards. And, you know, that's what it takes. People saw us jumping off a cliff and it wasn't enough. They wanted to throw a backflip. For that next generation of backflips, not enough. They want to spin and grab. But if you go back to sort of the classic 80s cross up and you add a grab, it's you can see the progression. It's not far away. And it's so, so funny. I never thought to grab my edges. I didn't want to cut my gloves, but who am I? You know, (laughs) was there a point where you were like, like who came out of the woodwork and you were like, this is next. Like, when were you, not that you passed the torch, but there's a point where you're like, okay. And it was called extreme skiing then. So we'll call it extreme skiing, but like, all right, it's time. Like I said, uh, Jason Leventhal and, uh, and Mike Nick, um, you know, I, we did a lot of work together. Mike Nick was one of the hosts of my show, uh, Wild World Winter. He had his own segment, uh, Planet Winter. And, you know, I, I knew that what he was doing was something I would never do. Uh, he was on winning gold medals in the X Games on ski blades. Um, and I remember when they took ski blades out of the X game, you know, Mike wanted to, he came to me like, I got to learn to ski with poles. like we can do that i can help you that now i can help you you know and uh and then you know i think when we saw kreitler and and mcconkey and coming out of the 90s you know out of that first world extreme contest in alaska um you saw people 
that it was just going in a different direction or the fact that it was going to be judged timed um, that that was going to be something else. And it wasn't going to be what I was going to do. Just to touch back. I love that you give credit to Jay and Mike Nick, because yeah. those are like, that's where I, that's when I grew up. Like I grew up on those guys. I had Mike Nick pro model ski <laughs> ski boards. Like I, I still nice. have a pair, like they're my nice. nostalgia. Like I have them. I bring them out once a year and I, you know, but I don't think he gets enough credit because Solomon came out with snow blades and K2 came out with their fatties and they like, didn't want to give him any like, no, he invented that. He no, saw he something. And the first pair of line ski boards were skied at holiday Valley in Ellicottville, New York. Cause he was, he was, uh, he was an engineering major at university of Buffalo. That's right. So yeah, no, I mean, they, they change. I mean, people, Maybe now I think they recognize that Jason is uh, the Jake Burton of the ski industry. And he is. Um, and I, I think that's only going to be solidified the older he gets. That's the way of things work. But he's the Jake Burton of the ski industry. He He's the man who who did it. If it wasn't for Jason, you wouldn't, you know, Solomon and Dina Star and all these bands that basically ripped them off. They If he didn't push the edge, the other ones wouldn't have followed. Exactly. And same thing with with what Warren did to John Jay or what Stumpy did to Warren. It, it takes somebody to push the edge. Uh, Mike Nick, you know, he he's a really smart guy. You know what he did with the clothing company. He had his own clothing company, which was successful. And then he went up to Canada and did his thing. And now he's you know still doing it, you know, as a consultant. Like he's a brilliant guy and a very humble guy. Uh, and an outrageous athlete, even today, like the kids stack. So he's, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. It's that's who I grew up on. So I always gave credit to those guys. Cause I was like, without that, we wouldn't be doing this. They saw Jay saw something that no one else saw, including yeah. yourself who was in it. And, yeah. and you knew like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, this is just a blanket wildest trip you ever went on. It can well, be, it doesn't have to be dangerous. It does, but like <laughs> just a blanket. Well, the wildest stand. trip, the, the most, da- the, the craziest thing I ever did was sneak into Beirut, Lebanon when there were still hostages. Bar none, that was the craziest thing I, I ever did. Um, had this idea that I wanted to run the 1993 Middle East peace ski and uh, ski the highest peak in Lebanon with one representative from every Middle Eastern country. And we worked for years on this project. Uh, it was endorsed by the U- UN. Uh, it was sponsored by Middle Eastern Airlines um, and the American Arab League. And they arranged for me to get into Beirut uh, and not have my passport stamped because if my passport got stamped, I'd get, uh, and it was illegal to go. Um, so I would have been facing a, a major fine of $10,000 or more, plus who knows what happens. Um, so, you know, this is the instruction I got from Middle Eastern Airlines. We can't fly you out of the States. So book yourself a flight to London. Then when go to the gate to check in for the Middle Eastern flight and tell them you go into Damascus and wink twice and they'll put you on the Beirut flight. And I was like, <coughs> what? No, no, do it. So I went to Heathrow. I found the Damascus flight. I went, I'm going to Damascus, winked twice. And they went this way. And I got on the Beirut flight. And from the moment I got on that flight, people said, what are you doing? You should not, you should get off. Uh, There were no American men on that flight. The only Americans were women who had married Lebanese. They all came and said, you know, I wouldn't have my brother on this flight. You, you should not go. Um, I was going and <laughs> we got off, you know, at the time the Beirut airport was still a mat. It was still a war zone. It had been bombed. Uh, they were burned out everything around the land in the runway. The, the uh, customs was a cage. You went into this cage. And when I got there, I, I gave him my passport and the guy goes, ah, oh, Mr. Egan, we've been expecting you. And he put a piece of paper over my passport and stamped it. And 
I got met by Christian Shiite. He and all the public was a mile away at a gate. He said, get in the back of the car and duck, get ducked down. Nobody can see you. And so we went up through the gate. And when we got up through the gate, he goes, you can sit up now. <laughs> and I go, where are we going? He goes, the colonel wants to meet you. I said, the colonel wants to meet me. Colonel wants to meet you. We went into Beirut, came to this totally fortified building with sandbags and guards and all this craziness, came into the courtyard. He goes, you can get out of the car, but don't go anywhere. And the driver went into the building and I'm standing in this courtyard looking around. Colonel comes out of the house. He goes, Mr. Egan, my brother owns a gas station in Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) I said, on Mass Ave? He goes, yeah, the Shell station? He goes, yeah. I'm like, I go there all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And so... You know, that that was that was pretty wild to do that. Um, of course, a lot of people forget what happened. It's a good time to talk about it. Uh, in uh, February of 1993 was the first World Trade Center bombing when they drove those uh, bombs into the parking garage of fertilizer and the bombs went off. And, you know, with the University of 9-11 20 years ago, uh, when you go to the memorial, uh, there's those names from the 93 bombing are on the memorial wall um, changed the course and it's it's often forgotten but that changed everything the trip was canceled nobody would go um, on the trip powder magazine actually did write a story about the trip uh, in 93 for uh, the few our Lebanese friend who went with the, some it, my friend Henry uh, but I didn't go I couldn't get anybody to go with me did you get any flack for going well my parents were freaked out Uh, (laughs) and what happened when i left lebanon there's a huge lebanese uh uh, community in boston uh, which is how i originally got connected with lebanon and so all these people were giving me gifts bring to my friend bring to my 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 sons my daughters all this sort of stuff i didn't think about it. it was all wrapped in uh in lebanese newspaper so when I got into Heathrow and I went back through customs, they're like, where you been? I'm like, oh, right here in London. You were in London for 10 days? Yeah, I didn't go anywhere, you know? And they're like, yeah, how come your passport is stamped with Yugoslavia, Turkey, Romania, all these places we had gone around the world, Russia? You didn't go anywhere? I'm like, no, nah, I didn't go anywhere. And now I'm late for the flight, right? And I've got my backpack. I got all my stuff. And... Somebody comes walking by the desk and go, hey, isn't he on the Boston flight? And they, they said, yeah, he is. They only check his check-in. Don't worry about his carry-on. Well, I had everything in my carry-on, all the, all the newspaper stuff. So they checked my check-in and I got through. But had, that, had they checked that carry-on, I never would have got on that flight. Never would have got on that flight. Do you still live loose and fast like this or have you settled down <laughs> a little bit? I'm stressed listening to it. Well, some would say yes. Some would say yes. I'm 15 minutes from the Canadian border and we can like kind of go over now. And I'm like, I'm not dealing with that. Like, no way right now. Here you are like, oh, we're banned here. I'm going to go ski because it's fun. (laughs) But what I was saying is if that goes great, it goes great. But there's no like if that goes bad, it goes terribly wrong. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was talking to. Vasu the other day about his recent descents, climbing and skiing uh, Denali and, and what his plan B was, you know? Uh, and of course out in the mountains, you know, it's easy, you know, I've got a sat phone, there's helicopters, people can come get me. But when you're messing with international, you know, like war zones, it's not that easy to, to, to have a plan B. Like I had no plan B. If I had got stuck in Beirut, uh, you know, the government, the U.S. government basically said the State Department has, has said, we're not coming to get you out. There's already hostages. We're not going to go get one more. Um, not who willingly goes I, over <laughs> to yeah. go skiing for peace, <laughs> skiing for peace. for peace, for peace. But, you know, the, the thing now, Adam, you think about it and I say this all the time. I never could have imagined 
that the world would not become a safer place. And it has not like you couldn't go to these places. You still couldn't go to Beirut. You still couldn't go. You know, you, you know, when we were in Turkey skiing with the Kurds, you wouldn't go do that today. Uh, my friends that went Warren Miller went to Kazakhstan, you, you might not do that again today. Uh, you know, a lot of these places haven't become safer. And I guess that's one thing that I, I never would have foresaw. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast and just yeah, exactly. I, it's just like, I don't know, because I just call, I like to call people humans like we're all human. I don't care what color you yeah. are, your size, your shape, your we're all humans like that's yeah. someone's son, that's someone's daughter, that's someone's mom. Yeah. And I think if we just said that once in a while, it would like if news line, you know, instead of a news headline saying white guy kills black man or black man kills white man or like how about just human killed human or human starting war with other hu- like it's just so missed and that's a whole nother world of we could talk about that for days but well but it is interesting you know and, and i i say this too like the one thing about the human race is that when one goes missing many go searching uh there's something attached in our soul that we go searching uh, we, we notice when one goes missing, um, you know, use cold cases are still being solved. You see the efforts going into Everest to find the bodies and these other things. When one goes missing, many go searching. And that is not even a conscious thought. It's a species thing. And it's super important. That's how valuable we all are. That when one goes missing, many go searching. And that's why it's so painful to lose people. That's why when we think of Shane and Doug and, and Trevor Peterson, and the list goes on and on, it's painful to think about missing them uh, because we want our friends with us. And, you know, the, the line in the McConkey movie, Gaffney says, Shane would be really pissed off to know he died. And that is like the best statement of all times. Uh, Shane McConkey loved to live. And he lived it out on the edge. A lot of the things that I'm describing, he was also doing uh, out on the edge, uh, maybe in a different realm, but, but out on the edge. And when you when you walk towards the edge, you know what I call life without a net, like you could fall and things can happen. Like if you're going to be driven by blind ambition and pursue this thing that you quote unquote love. The question is, what are you willing to risk financially, relationship wise, physically? You know, people don't think about those things, you know, life without a net. It's like and I love this because people will come and ski with me at Big Sky. And then one day I'm going to retire and do what you do. And I think to myself, not a chance in hell, dude. You have no idea what it takes to do what I do. I mean, and, and I'm not you know, I'm not saying that from a bragging. I'm like, you don't really understand what I've given up to do what I'm doing. And if you did understand that. You wouldn't be waiting to retire to do it. Yeah, those are wise words from Dan Egan right there. That's pay a lot of money for that for that speech. <laughs> <clears throat> and, but it's true. And, you know, we're I don't want to keep you too long. I'm happy, dude. I can go all day standing on my head, never repeat myself. I love that. Um, <laughs> standing on my head, never repeating myself. Just making sure my recorder's all good with the drop, but. I'm recording on both, so we're okay. Um, <laughs> you do other things, like when? It, so you do. You've sailed all over the, sailed all over the place, right? Yeah. From what yeah. I gather, you grew up a sailor, but then I'm sure you took a long break while you were pushing the ski career. But you sailed all over. You film sailing. You've created a a full media company. You've done national tours, speaking tours. You're in the Ski Hall of Fame. I think you now MC the ski hall of fame what what's next for dan egan where does dan egan you know we can pay a lot of money to go ski with you in montana like where where does where does dan egan go next yeah it's uh you know as i sit out here in thornton new hampshire right down the road from waterville valley like you know it's peaceful here some days i don't want to go anywhere but here um but I got a few things in the works. Um, I'm shooting a film called Transferring, Trans, Transforming the Beautiful Game, 
the Clyde Best soccer. It's about racism in soccer. Uh, Clyde Best was the Jackie Robinson of the English Soccer Premier League. Um, so we're ramping up on that project. Uh, the producer on that project is my good friend, Julie Anderson, who produced the Michael Vick 30 for 30. Um, she's done a lot of racial stories. Uh, it's an important story uh, to tell. Um, so we're shooting that, you know, for a streaming release on Amazon and Netflix. Um, it's a big, big story. It's very challenging to me, uh, to tell that. So that's pushing an edge for me. Um, book project is dying to ski and it's about all our lost friends. It's called the lost skiers of the big mountain generation. Um, and it tracks the losses from Paul Ruff in the eighties, all the way through to today, we've, we're, we're tracking 25 to 30 stories there. Uh, and that project is going to create a living memorial where all of the foundations for these, uh, individuals can be found and people can pick and choose and donate to these foundations that have been found for Shane and Doug and Trevor and so many others. Um, it, dying to ski is an important, uh, project for me because uh, in 30 years in a white haze, I could have easily died many times, but particularly in Elbrus. Um, and I feel like as a survivor, uh, I've got a little perspective on what it takes to what, what came into those decisions, good and bad, um, and what it's like to survive these strategies. So we're telling that story through the eyes of survivor. And the question with dying to ski, which we're posing to people is, you know, sport was designed to enhance our life, not end it. And is dying doing what you love a good death? Like what's, what's important here? Um, and one super interesting thing about this is like when Paul died in Kirkwood, uh, jumping 135 feet and came up short, uh, you know, there was this much written about it in Ski Magazine. Um, but the, if you remember back to Plake Avalanche, where Glenn survived and his tent mate perished when the avalanche took out the tent in in over over, uh, I think they were somewhere in Nepal in the Himalayas and uh, much press and ski to CNN. Well, that's the growth of an industry. So as the industry grows, what we're seeing is you know, lost individuals and at what cost. So I think it's a really important project. Um the people that we're interviewing, the survivors, the wives, the kids, they, they, they're into it. It's an important project. So, um, you know, for me, you know, you get this far in life uh, by hook or by crook, right? I call it winging and prayer productions. <laughs> uh, and, you know, at some point, you know, I want to just help others do what I've already done. So that's sort of my mission. Um, I don't know beyond white haze, how much more I'm going to talk about the Egan brothers. We did it. We've done it. I've said it. And now we're moving on to bigger projects. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear you and refreshing to hear you. You lived it. That's the easiest way to say it. You lived it. You and your brother did it. You did it all. I'm sure there was, and I haven't, I have the book. I haven't gotten a chance to fully read it. So I apologize. Um, but there's years of partying and there's years of stupid mistakes and bad decisions. And, and you're, you both are the lucky few that made it out. And, you know, and that when you're both skiing that line, I don't remember where, but it's the, you know, it's the famous Egan brothers line where that whole cornice breaks and you guys get out. Like that could have easily went, boom, you're gone. Like you're, you know, and to, to look back and say you lived it and now being able to like, how can I help, my community, my ski, you know, everybody it's saying I lived it. And what's, what's it worth? What is this sport, this fun worth? Yeah. I, I think, you know, we need to ask ourselves those questions. Uh, the athletes today are disguising that under this word progression. They want to progress. And uh, it's, it's a great word, but, but I don't think a a lot of thought it through what the progression is leading towards what's the end of it and um when people ask me what's next in extreme sports i just point to what it's becoming and what i see which is multi-sport 
it's a combination of sports. Speed flying is a combination of skiing and paragliding. Uh, ski basing, same thing. Uh, so, so when you see um, when you see these things happening, uh, it's a progression of of sport. Um, we're starting to see it in mountain biking. Um, so, you know, the next level is, is really unknown. And what's happening is people are be attaching themselves to progression, right? Like they want to do the next thing, but they're not asking themselves at what cost. And what we're seeing in the Olympics and the X Games is younger. So, you know, Kai Peterson, like we're seeing it go younger. We've been seeing that trend for a long, long time. So now we're having sort of not fully developed minds chasing a progression to what? And that that's there it is right there. I don't know. I don't judge it. I observe it. It's not my point to judge it, but I can look at it and say, mm, there's something going on in there. Yeah. And I think the perfect example is Cody Townsend. He skied that line. We all know that line, the line of the yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. And the next year he walked, not walked away, but he found a new, still risky, still pushing the limits, but a new way to progress his skiing and his self without that's a no mistake line. That's a no fall line at that speed. Oh yeah. He didn't, you know, he could have jumped turned that and we all would have been blown away as well. I think Travis Rice actually skied or snowboarded it prior to him. He did, yeah. but if you watch yeah. Travis Rice footage, and I'm not take, but like, he didn't ride it like Cody Townsend did. Like he committed, and I and I think he he did that and stepped back and said, like you did, I made it. What's next for me that keeps me, you know? Now they've got a baby on the way, which they didn't at the time, but they were that was probably a conscious. We got to grow up, so now he has this 50 project, continuing to stay relevant, continuing to push his sport. But I see a 50 project, a Cody Townsend project, Marcus return of the turn. I can do that. I have that. I'm not as good as either of them, but I can do those things. I can go and practice turning. Yeah. I can't do a 1440. I'm not, I'm not even going to try. Like yeah. that doesn't excite me. And that's to full circle what we talked about earlier, but it's, they're still progressing a sport, but not they're evaluating the risks. And they're maturing, you know, that's the thing, right? So, you know, you got to mature and you get, you know, the, the end game, right. Is to survive it all. Like that's the end game, you know, the end game isn't to perish and then have a feature article or so story about you. That's not the end game. Uh, so that that's the, that's the thing we need. And that, that's to me, the giving back and the raising awareness piece. To wrap up a little bit, I don't have any inappropriate questions because I'm not Powell, but I do have a a story about a North Face van that you guys had. North Face gave you guys a van to travel all over the place. They wanted it back. You didn't give it back. They repoed it. And this is my gathering. They repoed it. And then you guys went and stole it back. Can you confirm or deny this story? That is all very true. It was, uh, we, you know, it, we lived in the van uh, and uh, we had been given the van to drive. I must say this has happened on it with a couple of different car manufacturers where they give <laughs> us cars and the plates expire. We never think about it. We just keep driving the thing. So the lease had expired on the North Face van. And uh, when North Face realized that they wanted the van back. Of course, we were on tour. We were all over the place, John and I, and we didn't tell them where we were. Of course, no internet, no texting. So, you know, but the word got out down to Berkeley that the Egans are in Tahoe. So they they found the house we were staying at, which was my brother Ned's, and they came to repo the van. And so as they're towing the van away, I'm like, dude, they're towing the van. And John's like, don't let them tow the van. All our shit's in it. Like we got all our stuff in there. <laughs> so we're chasing the van down the road. And so uh, they towed it all the way back to Berkeley. And uh, John and I started thinking about this. You know, we need that thing. So we hopped a ride down to Berkeley. And uh, John says, listen, I'm going to go in the back door at the loading dock and talk to all my friends in the warehouse. 
you pop up and talk to whoever those people are you talk to in marketing. And then in 20 minutes, meet me out front. So <laughs> we went up to, I went up to marketing for a review of the situation. And John went in the back door, reloaded the van with tents and backpacks and new clothing with his buddies on the warehouse. I walked out the front door, van was idling and we drove away. And uh, <laughs> they basically threw in the towel after that, realizing that it was an inside job. So, yeah. <laughs> It all goes back to you can't get away with that now. You would have been arrested. You would have been like you would have been, you would have made CNN for sure, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Dan, thank you, thank you for taking the time. I feel like we could talk for hours. Um, Thirty Years of White Haze. That's your new book. It's out. You have a tour coming up, talking about it. Uh, I think you can buy it on Amazon if you want to buy it. Right, you can buy it from your website. Yep. Thank you. Hey, thank you, man. Appreciate it. And thanks for supporting the book. And uh, yeah, check us out. We're all around New England. We're in Colorado coming up and uh, white-hayes.com or for the whole schedule, go to dan-egan.com. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate thanks, it. What'd you guys think of that? Dan Egan, ski legend. Uh, I have to give a thank you to Corey Potter because he and Dan have worked together for years and he gave me a lot of insight and a lot of questions to ask that I wouldn't have known to ask. Dan was amazing. We could talk for hours. Uh, hopefully I will get Dan on again to talk more because I just think he has so he has such a great insight on the industry and he lived it and he's done it. Uh, a lot of us have opinions, but we haven't lived it. Dan is, has lived it. He's lived through the straight skis, the parabolic skis, the twin tips. He lived through all those movements. Dan, thank you. Fans, thank you. Friends, thank you. Hope everyone has an amazing week this week. Again, I will be at Denver Oktoberfest on the mic. So if you are in Denver this week, let me know. We can, uh, I don't know, have a soda. All right. I am. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. I am at Mr. Max. Follow at Mr. Max. Follow at Out of Podcast. This is the Pursuit Podcast, and I'll see you tomorrow.